0: Good morning, church. My name is Will Stevenson, and I have the awesome privilege of preaching the word of God this morning. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. you'll grab that and turn to page 942. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. We are in Romans chapter 5 verse 6 through 11. How can you know, Christian, how much God loves you? Our text today says that God has proved his love to us or established it. He's demonstrated it. He's shown his love to us. There are many ways to show love, but the formula Paul uses is to prove God's love is this. The quality of one's love is equal to the comparison of one's merit and the cost of the gift. The quality of one's love is the cost of the gift minus the merit of the one who receives it. I've got a couple examples to show that. Number one, think about a wage. When you go to work and you give an hour of your time to do a job, and your employer then pays you $7.65 to work for an hour, we compare those, we see that one hour and a wage, you're left with no difference. When a boss pays you for your wage, that doesn't show you how much he loves you. That's just good business, right? To show it the other way, imagine a husband when he comes home after a really long, grueling day of work, and he has in his hands a bunch of flowers just because. The wife didn't do anything in particular to merit that from him. She didn't, she didn't try to earn flowers from him. And it cost him a little bit of time and a little bit of effort. We see in that a display of love. The husband loves his wife. Well, in the same way, God proved his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, transforming us from enemies into friends. And that's what I hope we will see this morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would turn hearts to you like only you can. Lord, work in miraculous ways to give people sight. Would you bless your people? And bring glory to your name. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for an outline, I have points uh, one through three. Number one, our merit. Number two, the cost of the gift. And number three, the gift itself. Number one, our merit. Number two, the cost of the gift. Number three, the gift itself. Number one, our merit. Are humans bad? It's a very controversial question these days. One author is quoted as saying, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. What he means is, is people are, right down to their core, sinners. Therefore, people regularly, as a matter of fact, do things that they should not do. It's empirically verifiable, meaning the data backs it up. To see this, we can just take a brief trip down humankind's memory lane. Just the last century proves this. A century that was touted by many as an age of progress, well, what does it show us? Look at Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Soviet Russia, Mao's China, look at all the genocides all the murder that's sprinkled across the globe. Consider World War I and World War II. According to Matthew White's estimate on the page, Worldwide Statistics of Casualties, Massacre, Disasters, and Atrocities, things like war, forced famines, and genocide have carved out a staggering 123 million lives, making the last century the bloodiest century of all. This shows progress, but not the progress that we were hoping for. So I ask again, is man bad? You might come back at me and say, but Will, no one is arguing that these are good people, right? I mean, for every 10,000 good folks, you might get a bad egg who, under the right conditions, does a lot of harm. And I understand your point. However, before you slam down the gavel, and make a, a judgment of good or bad, let's slow down. It's interesting, isn't it, that whenever we consider this question about man's goodness, our instinct first is to draw comparisons with the worst people in history, and then make our conclusions. But is it possible that humans are bad, even if they're not like Hitler? I remember when I was younger, uh, whenever we would go to school, we were allowed to pick one snack out of the snack basket. And my mother laid it, she set it close to the door. And and it was very severe. You get one snack, and that's it. And that's only when you get it. And to this day, I don't know if my mom knows this, uh, but one morning, I remember sitting there and staring at that snack basket for what felt like 30 minutes, right? Probably 30 seconds, because I'm like seven. Uh, But as I'm staring, there's a war in my conscience. I know that I'm not supposed to take another snack. I know that I'm about to disobey my mother. And I get up and I run and I take a, a pack of gummies and I start eating them, right? And I get like two or three in before I bury it underneath all the other snacks. Like I'm not even caught red-handed. I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I don't know, they may, they, they may have been there for a while. Who knows? Uh, but what this shows is that I'm a rule breaker, right? I broke the rules, I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew what I ought to do. But I wouldn't do it. I should have been convicted as a criminal. I would have been in any court in our household. Because you know that you aren't charged with breaking the rules because you finally did something worse than a dictator. You're charged with breaking the rules because you've broken any one rule. I'm a rule breaker. We are faced with decisions to choose the right thing all the time. Sometimes we do. For some people, maybe even most of the time, they do. But let me make my point about human nature this way. Why aren't humans good all of the time? The Apostle Paul gives a clear explanation for this. And it's not a flattering one. So to see this, we're going to travel a different kind of Roman's road. I'm calling this the Roman's road of depravity. Picking up, if you want to try to follow along, you can, but feel free to just listen. Romans chapter one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give give approval to those who practice them. Chapter two, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Romans chapter eight. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Romans chapter 3. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift To shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And again, for emphasis, all of mankind knows God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So, according to Paul, man is bad indeed. Fundamentally, all human beings are moved to sin in varying degrees because of the same disease. We are all sinners. I don't need to point to Hitler or Mao to prove the argument. There's enough examples in this room. Or as Paul says, such were some of you. And so I want to continue looking at this with Paul. That brings us to Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. I'll read it for us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him or by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Notice Paul's descriptors about mankind. He says we were weak, sinners, ungodly, and the That is, we're at war with God, unwilling to obey God's commands, and unable to save ourselves. I think the thrust of these verses crescendos in Paul calling us enemies. The reason sinners sin is because they are hostile to God. If they saw him face to face, they would try to hurt him. Literally. They would mock him and abuse him, and shove thorns on his head, and put him on the cross, and impale him in the side. It would kill him. Enmity towards God, that nature that is warring against him, is proved even in the earliest examples of human nature. Consider the immediate effects of sin from Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 11. Taking first Genesis chapter 4, Cain brings a half-hearted sacrifice to God. And the Lord had regard for his brother Abel's sacrifice, but not for Cain's. And Cain was very angry, it says. And it says that his face fell to the ground. But who was Cain angry at? Why was he so upset? Do you see it? Cain made an offer to God and couldn't get past his desire. No, his demands that God receive his offering. Therefore, in anger towards God, Cain turns to his brother, Abel, who is an image bearer of God, and kills him. So part of the reason that Cain killed his brother was that in his sinful nature, he was shaking his fists at the heavens. This becomes even more obvious in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. They just got off the ark and... People have come together, and they're, they're building a, a fortress. There's a lot of speculation as to the reason why they were building this, but I think the main point is stated for us very clearly in verse four, which reads, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Don't miss it. What did God tell Noah and his family when they got off the boat? He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the whole earth. To which the people said, no, we're not going to do that. They gathered together, they literally built a fortress, and they were going to refuse God and what he said. They were waging war with the one who was telling them what to do. Strengthening their defenses, resisting his rule, refusing to spread, Over the whole earth. That is so wrong. It's sin. So, what is the merit of human beings then? In our human nature, friends, we are rebels outfitted for war. Our guns are loaded, and our slogan is on our sleeves My will be done on earth, and not as it is in heaven. This is the root cause of mass murder. And it's the root cause of disobedience of parents. So remember that the quality of God's love is proved by first seeing our merit compared to the cost of the gift. And I hope you see, we certainly don't merit any good thing from God. Far from it, we're actually deserving of God's wrath. When Paul says that we're enemies of God, we were enemies of God, he's not just talking about sorry. He's not just talking about himself or us. He's also talking about God towards us. Yes, we are at war with God, but he is also at war with us. And you don't want to be at war with God. Sometimes what God does is he responds by justifying his name, by pouring out his righteous wrath on his enemies. And that's what he did when he flooded the whole earth. Other times, he shows incredible forbearance and mercy like he did with Cain. He gave him a mark of protection and sent him him on his own way and like he did for the Tower of Babel. He could have flicked them away like the weak enemies they were, but instead he graciously and kindly confused their languages and gave them a nudge towards doing what they ought to have been doing in the first place. But what about you when you were an enemy of God? Well, Romans 5 verse 8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still enemies, sinners, Christ died for us. That brings us to point number two, the cost of the gift. So we've seen that we haven't merited any goodwill from God. But what about the cost of the gift? The cost of the gift is the blood of Son of God Himself. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, He was self-existing, an eternal, perfect dance of joy and harmony with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And He exchanged those paradise, that paradise for the slums. He humbled Himself by coming into His own creation in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he suffered in so many ways. As a man, he faced the anguish of temptations and trials. He was hungry, even though he was the bread of life himself. He was tired and sleepy, even though he was the one who invented the very concept of rest. Even Jesus, in his human likeness, had to go and regularly Pray to God to help Him. And as for those who came to save, a great light dawned on creation, but they didn't know it. They didn't receive it. Jesus should have been received with joy, in tears and a long embrace. But they loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. From Jesus' very first breath, kings wanted him dead. He grew up to be a man of sorrows. His entire life mission of preaching the gospel was preached to those who didn't even want to receive it. They mocked him, they refused him, they betrayed him. This Jesus, who was a friend of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, he was dishonored by those entrusted to care for the have-nots and the abused. And when they set their face against him to murder him, could Jesus have not called down a legion of angel armies? He's the horn of David's salvation. He dropped both Goliath's and Dagon's head to the ground. He's the I Am of Moses that buried the enemies of of Israel in the Red Sea. He could have easily Flicked away, these rebels. The one who deserved to be served, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord at the request of the Father. Can you imagine Abraham's fear when he took Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him? daggers in his hands. He's going to kill his son. But at the last second, there was a ram in the bush and his son was saved. And God provided a sacrifice. Think about the wailing in Egypt when the firstborn was killed by the angel of death that blew over their nation. The cries, the pain, the suffering, the cost. But Jesus, or, or rather God, He provided a Passover lamb for the Israelites. But there was no replacement for his own son. His son is the scapegoat. Jesus' blood was the payment. His life was the cost. This was the father's decision. This was the father's will. He is the one who delivered up his son. And even when Christ was carrying the cost, he said, Please take this cup from me. Let it pass to someone else. Yet not my will be done, but your will be done. And what was the Father's will? It was to crush him, his only son, his only begotten son, to crush him in the winepress of his wrath. And he did. He was nailed to the cross. His precious blood mingled with the dirt, the same dirt that he had used to make Adam, the same dirt who Adam's son, Abel, was killed and bled over. And while Abel's blood speaks to us a word, the blood of the Son of God speaks a better word, For the blood of Abel reminds us all that we are enemies of God. But the blood of the Son of God that mingled with that dirt reminds us that we have been reconciled to God at extreme cost to Him. This is precious blood. The gift is free to you, but the gift costs God everything. And even in his glorified body, the Son of God bears these scars. So I say to you, consider your merit as an enemy of God compared to the cost of the blood of the Son of God. And what do you see? You see amazing love. Point number three, the gift itself. the gift itself. The first part of the gift, because it does come to us in two parts, also called the good news, is justification through Christ's atoning blood. You can be saved by receiving Christ's payment on your behalf right now. I stand before you as a herald of the good news of God that you can lay your weapons down. The battle against the king is over. It has stopped. God doesn't have to exact the punishment that you deserve on your head because he's already exacted that punishment on the head of his beloved son. He bore the wrath of God by spilling his place in Or spilling his blood in your place so that you would be justified. God is seated on his throne, on his judgment seat, right now, prepared to declare you righteous and good. Lay your weapons to him. Trust him. Stop fighting him. The war is over. And he will do this for you, not because you aren't weak or ungodly. Or a sinner, or deserving of his wrath, because you are, and because I am. But he'll do that for you because his son was good and pure, and he's ready to stand in your place, sinless and pure. Will you trust him and be saved? You can have peace with God. In light of all this, Paul says something frankly stunning. In verse 11, he refers back to everything that we've been discussing. He points at God's love towards us and sending his son to die on our behalf while we were still fighting and fighting Him and at war with him. He points at that, and in verse 11, begins by saying, "More than that. More than justification. More than being saved by His wrath. There's more than that? Yes. Verse 11 reads, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God's love for you does not end in justification. The gift of justification is not an end. It's a means to an end. He doesn't just call rebels to be it, with him, and then lock them outside of his palace. He invites them in. The gift isn't just that the war ends, but that the celebrations begin. It's more than not being executed for treason, it's that you get to truly live. It's not a get out of hell free card, it's a get into heaven card where he is. In God's wisdom, the price is also the prize. Jesus is the cost, and Jesus is the end. Worship and joy in God is the end of your justification. He's the gift, God is the gift. The main reason you were ever saved, ever created, and ever saved, was to rejoice in Him. God made everything good, but the relationship was ruined, and that's the greatest tragedy in all of human history. But God, in His love, exchanged the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, and that's the greatest love the world has ever seen. Through justification, we rejoice in God. We begin giving God the glory that we had uh, had up to this point been denying Him. God has given His enemies the gift of rejoicing in God at the cost of His Son. There is no greater display of love. We have Him. Rejoice in Him. Rejoice in Him. Everything is made right. Make Him your greatest treasure. Be satisfied in Him. Love Him. Lean into Him every day, every moment. Rejoice in Him. If you're like me, this truth instantly strikes you in three different ways. And they don't seem to mesh up very well. Firstly, it makes you so happy It makes you happy because you see that you have the greatest thing, and it's yours. Maybe you find yourself being filled with the Psalms, like Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Even though my flesh and my heart may fail, you are the strength of my heart. You are my portion forever. Or maybe Psalm 23. You anoint my head with oil, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Maybe Psalm 16. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brother and sister Christian, this is yours. Rejoice. I hope it makes you happy. Secondly, you may feel the crushing weight of conviction. I mean, really, who meditates on this truth and feels like they sufficiently appreciate and rejoice in God like they should? I know that I don't. There are 10,000 other things that are constantly vying for my affections. And day after day, I give in to them. I, I appreciate and spend my time loving and giving my affections over to other things besides God all the time. And that's wrong. It's wrong to choose other things over God. God deserves my full, undivided satisfaction and treasuring. Now, I just want to remind you of that you, as you hear this. There's grace for that. God is progressively working on our hearts to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates. And in the meantime as we're sojourning through this world and we're still trapped in this body of death, and we don't love what we should love and hate what we should hate, just repent. Repent and be quick to savor the grace that's readily available for you in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, and lastly, you may be saying to yourself as you hear about this joy, how should this affect my day-to-day? I mean, what do I, what do, I do with this? And that's what we'll be exploring for the remainder of our time. In general, it should be said out of the gate, that this applies to everything. I mean, this should be a paradigm shift to say that the reason God saved me is so that I would rejoice in him. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, the Bible teaches us. There's a way to take a nap and eat cereal and uh, go to church that brings glory to God. And there's a way to do that that doesn't. And I think the main significant difference between the two is joy in God, rejoicing in Him. But rather than spending my time proving that, let's look at some specifics that we can apply this to. Romans was written uh, for a couple reasons, but one of the main reasons it was written was to show the Romans the power and beauty of the gospel and encourage them to finance it. He had not been to Rome before and as he was passing through, he wanted them to finance his journey on the way to Spain to do mission work. And so I think an easy application that we take with this is that uh, this should be applied to our zeal for evangelism. (laughs) Simply put, rejoicing in God means giving your entire life over to seeing others come to rejoice in God. That's the greatest love you could ever do for anyone. It's where the Great Commission meets the Great Commandment. To love your neighbor is to plead with them and teach them and tell them about the good news of being reconciled to God and rejoicing in him. And so, how can we do that? Well, for one, rejoice in God more than your possessions. I think that's why he says, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve both God and money your heart only has enough room to be enraptured by one of them. He says, think about the kingdom of God first. So an application of that would be to simply prioritize giving to the local church. The local church converts earthly money into heavenly dividends. Money invested in this local church can have eternal impact we know that. We've seen people through the teaching ministry of this, uh, of this church be converted and come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. The money that was necessary for that to happen is resulting in eternal joy, eternal results. Sean has a salary. This building simply has expenses. There are other things you can throw your money at but they're not always as effective. I mean, we, you can put dollars towards uh, humanitarian efforts, which are good things, but trying to, to feed people doesn't take care of their eternal needs. We don't have to pit the two against each other. But I will say, why not invest in a local church where you know eternal work is be d- being done? It's simple. This church has, also, this church has a vested interest in... Raising up elders and raising up other godly men who were gonna go do gospel work. It's an easy way to see a church come to raise a small army of gospel warriors. Number two, on a similar note, if you wanna see more people reconciled to God, invite them to church. It's simple, it's easy. Your joy in the Lord should cause you to reach out to others and want them to share in that in the local church. Church. Give them an invitation. We have plenty of examples in this church of people who were invited by a member of our church and who are now members of this church. Also, be a generous sender. Given that you are first taking care of the local church and and those needs, you should consider giving to other agencies or individuals who you trust are doing good gospel work. To help others to come to join the Lord. There are missionaries all over the world. If you aren't aware of any good ministries that you should be supporting, talk to some members of this church. Subscribe to a newsletter or two. And of course, make a habit to pray regularly for the advancement of the gospel. Next, rejoice in God more than your personal image. One of the strongest parasites to joy in God is the fear of man. Very often, what we want is just to be liked, right? We, we just want to be popular. We don't want to cause a stir. But if you live like that, you're going to run dry. People can't give you what you want from them. Instead, what we've heard today is that we're made to rejoice in God. Go to him to be filled up. Let him cause your well to overrun. Then turn to other people, not to try to get something from them because you're still empty, but to give to them out of an overflow of your joy in God. And this is key as well. You don't need other people to rejoice in you, right? Like, or that's not what they need. What they need is to rejoice in God. Don't be a barrier to their joy in God by trying to be popular all the time. Point to Him, not yourself. If you make yourself an end, you're robbing them. Don't do that. To love your neighbor is to have a stronger desire to see them befriend God at any expense to yourself. And simply... Pray for God to help you to do better in one-on-one evangelism. Ask him to give you opportunities to put you in front of someone who doesn't know what it is to be reconciled to God. Ask him to put you there and then give them the gospel. It doesn't require some sort of special seminarian degree. You know the Lord. You were once an enemy of him. Now you're not. Well, tell people about it. Tell them, too, that they can put down the gun and be reconciled. Pray about that. Lastly, rejoice in God more than your own life. Jesus tells us, if you keep your life, you will lose it. And if you will lose your life for the sake of the gospel, you will keep it. On a personal note, God may call you to extreme evangelistic uh, situations. In which case, Uh, pray seriously about it. Um, Pursue it. Love the Lord more and love your neighbor more than your own life. Talk to elders of this church. Think seriously about it. And if God does call you to that, do it with joy, knowing that he will keep your life even if you lose it. In conclusion, you are an enemy of God meriting only his wrath. But God proved his love for you by sending his only son to die on the cross and pay for your sins. God has saved you. But more than that, you now rejoice in God, reconciled as a friend. Therefore, cherish your relationship with God as more valuable than anything on the earth. And from that joy, let that move you to overflow in radical obedience and prayer and to give and to serve for the cause of others coming to know that same joy. Let's pray. God, we have seen no greater love than that while we were enemies, you gave us your son. I pray, Lord, that this truth would stick to us and change us. Help us to rejoice in you the way that we ought to. Would you give us grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing together how deep the Father's love for us.